Good morning, church. Great to see you all, you hearty Hoosiers. Way to survive the week. Good job. We made it. Hanging in there, staying warm as we can. Welcome to campus today. Uh, Welcome to all of you joining us online. We had hundreds and hundreds of people joining us online from all over the world, literally, last week to enjoy the story. And so welcome to everyone who's uh, with us today. We're so glad you're here. We're going to start chapter two in just a moment, a very important and powerful part of the story. Just before we do that, I want to make a very special announcement. As uh, you may have recalled, we have been associated with a very special person in the world. His name is Nick Vujicic. And Nick is a a man uh, who you may, uh, we'll show you some video of him in just a moment. He was a man born without arms or legs. So he runs a ministry called Life Without Limbs. There was no, uh, no apparent reason why this should happen for him genetically. He has siblings who are completely normal, healthy that way. And um, his own children are also fully membered. And so uh, he's, he's a unique person. And God uses him in powerful ways. And you may recall that we have associated with Nick uh, in a ministry in prisons where we are planting churches in association with Nick's ministry in prisons, planting churches in prisons. So we're, we're training inmates in prisons to pastor, to plant churches inside of the prison. And Nick is very passionate about this as we are. And as a As a benefit of that relationship, Nick has agreed to come and be with us here at Union Chapel, and I have the dates. They will be, Nick will be here in a month. He will be here on Friday night, March the 4th, in this room. We're going to have at 5 p.m. that night a youth rally. Nick is very passionate about talking to teenagers and young people. So if you're junior high, senior high, or college age, You are welcome to that event. That's at 5 o'clock on Friday, March the 4th, just a month away. Then on Saturday night, there will be two opportunities here in this room, one at 5 o'clock and the other at 7.30. We know that there will be overflow crowds for both of those events, and that's why we're having two of them. Nick will not be here on Sunday morning. We're going to continue the story and keep moving through that, Um, and his schedule wouldn't permit anyway. But he wants to be here. Now, you should know that this is a very, very special opportunity. Nick would not normally and doesn't normally come to places, venues this small. He, he wouldn't come to a city this small, let alone a church this small. Uh, Nick fills any building that he's, he ever goes to. I mean, we, we literally, we could, we could go rent out Emmons Auditorium or Worthen Arena and probably fill the place because he is that compelling. Uh, he's an amazing human being, and, and he's very popular that way. But he wants to come here specifically because he wants, he wants to get to know us better as we want to get to know him better as we partner long-term in these prisons and see thousands of people come to faith because of that uh, relationship. So uh, here's the deal. You've, you've got to secure a ticket to be here. We're, you can't just open the doors for this guy because it'll overflow and it'll be a, be a mess. So you have to secure a ticket. You can do that by going online to unionchapel.com to events. And that's where you can order ticket. You can use the app, go to events. And it's right there. It's ready to receive your reservation. Now listen to me. 
don't come without bringing someone you know who isn't part of a church, who is a seeker, who's away from God for one reason or another in their life. Someone you know like that, bring them with you. This isn't going to be, you know, uh, you know, a little blessing fest for a bunch of Christians. That's not the idea. So bring your friends who would really benefit from hearing the hope and the message of Christ, and that will be great. So don't go online, order 10, 10 tickets for your small group, and then sh- you know, come early and sit on the front row and you know, have, a, have a great time. It's not that. If you do that, I'll be upset with you. So we can, we can cram about 1,000 people into this space and, and, an, and an overflow in the auditorium here in the, in the worship center. And so we will just issue that many tickets and first come, first serve. And again, March 4th, if you have teenagers or grandkids in, in the teen years or college age and you don't get them to come to this youth rally, I don't know what's wrong with you. Really, I don't, I don't know. You, this, is a, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. So uh, take advantage of that. You can get the tickets, and I'll, I'll leave it to your prayerful discretion. It's going to be a great experience. Okay, I hope you brought your story with you today, and we're ready to launch into Chapter 2, God Builds a Nation. Let me just remind you of these five movements that we know encapsulates the biblical story. The first movement, which we discussed last week, was creation. This is paradise, the Garden of Eden, creation. We talked about the fall, original sin. We talked about the flood, the flood of Noah. And we talked about the Tower of Babel. This is all the first movement. Now, there are five movements. And if you, you can see a timeline there uh, on the screen. This is a timeline of where we're going. You can see kind of five colors there. Um, But I like to think of it in a circle, if you will. So we start with paradise. This is God's original vision. We are the apple of his eye. We are the centerpiece of creation, human beings. And God's original vision was to spend eternity in relationship with us, in community, in intimate fellowship. That was God's design with the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve rejected that vision. And so the rest of the story is about God making up for that, and, and finally coming full circle. So the first movement was paradise, the Garden of Eden. The second movement, which we begin, begin today, is the story of Israel, the nation of Israel. The third story, movement, if you will, is the story of Jesus. The fourth movement is the story of the church, the people of faith, the followers of Christ. And then the last, the fifth movement, is back to paradise. The Bible calls it heaven. Uh, the eternal kingdom, the new Jerusalem. So you can see that God's intention, his original vision is going to come to pass. In the meantime, there is this amazing story that unfolds of the nation of Israel, the person of Jesus, the church, and then back to God. God's vision will come to fruition, and we are part of that story. And that is how you understand the Bible. Now, today we want to talk about how God builds his nation through a guy named Abraham. Now, you will note... As we go through the story, that time and again, God is doing some big picture things and some lower story things. You see this upper story, lower story. You see the heavenly vision for a particular part of the story. And then the nuts and bolts, kind of the the, the gritty human interaction that's going on in the lower story. And throughout this narrative, 
we find that God is constantly using people to accomplish his will and purposes. Now, we know God uses methods of various types, uh, uh, their strategies. He uses programs. You know, he'll use a nice building. There's all kinds of things God puts to use. But his primary agent of transformation and the effect of his will in the world is through people. Now, hear that. That's so important. Today, we're going to talk about a guy named Abraham. Now, God builds a nation, but he does it through a guy named Abraham. Next week, we're going to study the life of Joseph, and we'll see that God preserves a nation through a guy named Joseph. And then the week after that, we will, we will see that God delivers an entire nation through a guy named Moses, who gives us the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And so you see this throughout history, that God uses people. God uses you. God uses me. This is his move. This is how he, that's how he affects his purposes in the world, through people. I want you to keep that thought because it's so important. Now, today, let me just begin the, the story with a, a little faith story, because Abraham is the father of our faith. There were two Catholic nuns coming home from a day's work at the hospital. They were in full habit, and they ran out of gas. The car stopped on a busy street, and so they looked in the car for something that they could carry some fuel in, just enough to get them to the gas station. The only thing they had available in the car was a bedpan. So they walk down to the local gas station, it's not far, and they fill the bedpan with gas and they go back to the car and so they're standing at the car and they've got this bedpan tipped up now and they're trying to empty the bedpan into the car. And another guy with a keen wit and a good sense of humor, he happens to be driving by as these two nuns are tipping up the bedpan into the car and he turns to his wife and points to the nuns and exclaims, now that's faith. If you didn't get that, just ask the person next to you to explain it. Yeah. So no one wants to stall out on the side of the road, but people do. Life happens, doesn't it? Things happen. Our health suffers. Our marriage gets in crisis. We lose a job. Life happens. And it may look okay on the outside of our lives, but on the inside, we're stuck. We're uncertain. We don't know if it's going to work out. If you're in a place like that right now in your life, and many people are, if you're in a place like that today, this will be an encouraging message for you. Because this fellow named Abram, who becomes Abraham, is going to be an inspiration, I think. So if you have your story, turn to page 13. And I want to read these verses from Genesis chapter 12, the first four verses there. We'll put them on the screen. And here's how it begins. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. Now, here's the initial contact from God to this guy named Abram. And he says, you're living in the Ur of Chaldeans. I want you to pack up everything, leave your family, leave everything familiar with you, and go west, young man. 
And he sends Abraham west, and he goes. But note Abram's age. He's 75 years old at the time. His wife, Sarai, is 65 years old at the time. And they get up and they leave. And off they, off they go. Now, let me ask you something. If you're going to start a new nation with a couple, you know, your offspring are going to become a great nation. Would you pick a couple who are 75 and 65 years old who have never had a baby in their life? Wouldn't be my first choice. I mean, I would pick some young, handsome couple, you know, who pop out babies, you know, as easy as it is, a, you know, toast, toast in the morning. I mean, you know, they, they, they got energy, they're passionate, they're ready to go. I mean, you ask a 75-year-old, no offense to people 75, but you don't even know if he's going to survive the trip let alone make a baby. So here he is, and he goes. Um, this is one of the themes that you're going to see throughout the Bible. What was that? <laughs> yes, Lord. <laughs> this is one of the themes you're going to see through the Bible, that God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. You heard me rant about that earlier, that God uses people. Now we know that God uses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. How many of you are happy about that? I am really happy because that qualifies me. I'm unlikely. So this is certainly the case with Abram. But this is exactly what God does. He chooses Abraham. We want to know why. Why have you chose Abraham? Um, and he's going to move the story forward through this guy. Look on the top of page 14 in your story. This is Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. He heard God, he obeyed, and he went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Uh, great, God, you're, you're sending me west. Uh, tell me where I'm going. I'll let you know when you get there. Man, that takes some faith, I would think. And so there it is. Abraham had faith. He obeyed God. He went. And so we assume that here's a guy who hears from God. He obeys what God asks him to do. He actually goes on the journey, not even knowing where he's going to land when it's over. And he just sets out. This is, a, this is a, remarkable, a remarkable moment. And you would think that a guy in the center of God's will acting so faithfully at a moment like this would have an easy trip. The first place they land, they find a place of famine. So they're starving to death. So they got to move from there just to find food and grazing ground for their herds. It's, it's, it's a rough life. Uh, I said a few weeks ago, and I just want to reiterate it, that oftentimes when you are in the very center of God's best plan and purpose for your life, listen to me, you're in the center of God's will can be the hardest place to live. If someone told you that living in the center of God's will and plan for your life is the easy place to live and the safest place to live and the place where you'll commit fewer mistakes, they'd be lying to you. I'm convinced that there are much easier ways to live your life than living in the center of God's will because God's will will always call you to the challenge to the character-building moments, to the faith-building opportunities. That's the way it works. And Abraham is no different. 
This guy was one mistake after another. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, he ends up in Egypt and he meets the Pharaoh there. And Sarai, even though she's 65, 66 years old at this point, apparently she's still very beautiful. I mean, the the text tells us she's a beautiful physical presence. So she's this lovely woman. And Abram, he reckons, if Pharaoh thinks that I'm married to you, he may fancy you and just have me killed. So, you know, it kind of eliminates all all of the red tape so that he can take Sarai into his harem and into his house. And so Abram says to Sarai, hey, just we'll tell Pharaoh you're my sister. So he's deceitful and manipulative and uh, not untrusting. And that's the story they tell. And they stick to it. And so Sarai ends up in the household of Pharaoh in the harem with the other women. And Abraham prospers for it. Now, how would that make your wife feel? How, how, would, you, how would you manage that? That's not good. That's a, like a big mistake. Then uh, a series of mistakes are happening in Abram's life. I mean, he's like, he's good at it. It's like, he can't be that messed up without divine help almost. He's just stepping in it all the time. And Sarai is learning lessons uh, from his mistakes. And over in Genesis 16, Sarai now becomes impatient waiting for this son of promise. You know, it's been years now and no baby and she's never had a baby and she's getting older by the day and she's past her time of child rearing. So she gets impatient, loses her hope. And so she has inherited this little uh, Egyptian handmaid named Hagar while they're in Egypt. And she's young and she's pretty and she's all curvy. And so, so Sarai says to her husband, Abram, why don't you take my, ha- my little cute little handmaid, Hagar here, and try to make a baby with her. Now, this confuses Abram. He's confused. He's cognitively confused. Why? Why is he confused? Because he's a man. (laughs) Some people speculate that God didn't actually remove a a rib from Adam's side to form the woman. He actually removed the man's brain to form the woman. Speculation. We don't know know what Abraham... or knew about God at this point, but we know he knows absolutely nothing whatsoever about women. When, when Sarai says to him, why don't you take my cute little maid and see if you can make a baby with her? He just goes, okay. <laughs> Stupid. He should have said to Sarai from the very beginning, look, are you crazy? I don't want that Egyptian woman. I only want you. If God doesn't allow you and me to make a baby, then we'll just go without. Because it's just you and me, baby. That's what a smart guy would do. (laughs) Abram fails again. So he has relations with Hagar. They make this baby, Ishmael. Ishmael's born. Now Hagar's strutting around Sarai, you know, because having a baby is really important in this culture and not having a baby is a bad thing in this culture. And so... And so she's trash-talking Sarai, and Sarah gets all sour about it. So we read in Genesis 16, verse 5, when Sarai finally confronts Abram about all of this, she says, may the Lord judge between you and me, meaning we'll let God judge who has done the greater sin, me offering you my handmaid or you taking her. And Sarai was right. 
because Abram's was the greater sin. Dope? What is he thinking? Nothing good's going to come of that. And this isn't the last time Abram fails his family or his faith. So the story of Abram is this coexistence of these numbers of mistakes that just keep piling up, piling up in his life. And at the same time, his faith, which continues to take strides and development and, and, and grows and becomes stronger. His trust and faith in God is actually growing through these adventures, these mistakes. Shakespeare said it this way. He said, all's well that ends well. Just a couple of years before the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham passed away, someone wrote an article about his life. They entitled it, The Christian in Winter. And in this article, they outlined some of the mistakes that Dr. Graham had made personally and professionally in his life over the years. But at the end, concluded that Dr. Graham was a man of faith and integrity. All's well that ends well. Listen to your pastor now. Would you, would you let me provide some pastoral care and insight? for you? Will you listen? In the end of your life, listen now, you will not be asked about the number of tests in your life that you have failed. That won't be a question. But rather you will be asked if you have learned through your mistakes and failures to love God more fully. Are you more in love with God because of your mistakes? Only you can answer that question. The question isn't whether we make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The question isn't, do we fail? Everybody's a failure. Yes. The question is, am I allowing those moments to draw me closer to God? and more deeply in love with him. That was worth your trip right there. So you think about that. And so the years passed by, 24 years precisely, since the promise was originally given to a 75-year-old guy, and now three angels are sent to Abram's camp. He's 99, Sarah is 89 years old at this point, and these three angels, who look like men, it's an anthropomorphic manifestation of angels, the Bible also teaches us that we oftentimes, or at least occasionally, entertain angels who seem to us like other people. But they just, they just dress up like a human, and they're servants of God and the messengers of God. And so these three men announced to Abram that one year from now, your baby will be born with Sarai. And, and they said, and by the way, the Lord wants to change your name and your wife's name today. Your name has been Abram, which means father, and it will now from this day forward be Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Here's this 99-year-old guy standing there going, I've never, had made a I've never had a baby with my wife, and now I'm the father of a multitude. Wow. And Sarai, which means princess, will be from this point forward Sarah which means queen. So the father of a multitude and his queen, 99 and 89 years old, a year from now, according to this angel, will have a baby. No pressure. And, and off they go. 
So let's see for ourselves at the bottom of the page, page 15 of the story, how these two kept their faith. This is from Romans 4. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Isn't that amazing? That's impressive, isn't it? You say, well, now that's faith. That's faith. That's a big deal. Now, here's a clue into how his faith was developing. Some years before this event I just described, about 15 years after the promise was made, so now Abram is 90 years old at this time, He's wavering in his faith. He's waited 15 years, nothing. And so God visits him and takes him out at night from his tent and and asks him to look up in the sky. He says, you see all the stars in the sky, Abram? He said, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. It's just a word of encouragement. Then Genesis 15, 7 and 8 reports, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? Isn't that a great question? How can I know that I will gain possession of it? It's a good question, and it's the right person to ask, the only one who had the answer. And then Genesis 15, 9 and 11. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all of these to him. They He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram Abram drove them away. Now, this, this may not seem like much of an answer, but in ancient times, this was a practice. A practice that was engaged when when two parties were going to make a covenant an agreement with each other. And in this case, a blood covenant. Now think about this. A heifer, a ram, a goat, uh, a dove and pigeon. And these, these animals are butchered and then cut in two. So there's, there's the slaughter of these animals. Their blood is poured out. They lay them on the ground, one on either side in this parallel to each other's and a corridor between them. And in ancient times, like if a king had conquered another people and this lesser king and the new king would do this sort of thing and lay out these carcasses of these animals and then walk between them. And by walking between these carcasses, this was making a covenant. And the covenant was very serious. It was very strong. And the meaning behind it would be as these two parties walk between these carcasses in their minds and with their words, they are saying, be it also done unto me if I break covenant with you. May the same thing happen to me as has happened to these animals if I break this agreement. It's very serious. I'm thinking we ought to do this at weddings. (laughs) Forget the flower petals down the center aisle. I need a heifer, a goat, a ram, and a couple of birds. 
lay them out. Can you, can you imagine? Mr. Groom, be careful. Don't step in that puddle of blood as you're coming up the aisle. Sweetheart, listen, Miss Bride, you might want to get someone to hold up the train of your beautiful white dress so you don't drag it over these bloody carcasses. And the weight of the moment is, may it also be done unto me if I break covenant with you. That might clear it up. It always gets really quiet, right, at this point. It's interesting. What do you think about that? So that night, Abram falls into this deep sleep. The Bible describes it as a thick and dreadful darkness. Think about this. It comes over him. Now, I want you to pay close attention to verses 17 and 18 here in Genesis 15. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, do you see what's happening here? God is saying, if I don't keep the covenant, if I don't build this nation, may it also be done unto me. May this curse fall on me. So God, in the form of this fire pot, this flaming pot, this, this flame in, in, in Abram's dream, passes between these carcasses. You'll note that Abram in his dream is not with the Lord passing through. Only God is passing between these carcasses. And he is making covenant. And God is essentially saying, if I fail to fulfill my covenant promise with you to start a new nation through you, then be it done unto me as has been done to these animals. May I be slaughtered and may my blood be poured out, says the Lord. It's a very, very powerful thing. That means that God is saying, if I fail, may it be unto me. But Abram, if you fail, if the nation of Israel fails, because you didn't walk through and make this covenant, only I made, made it through, this fire pot going through in his dream, then what he's saying to Abram is even if the nation fails, even if you fail, may it also be unto me because I am faithful. And when I make a covenant, even if you fail to keep your end of it, I will keep my faithfulness and I will fulfill my promise to you. May my body be broken, God says. May my blood be poured out. Can you see where this is headed? So how can you know? How can you know that what God has promised to you, God will deliver to you? How can you know everything is going to turn out? okay, because this is exactly what would happen. God was not done testing Abraham's faith. Now watch this. One, one year after the three angels visit, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. Sarah at the time heard these angels telling Abraham, a year from now you'll have this baby. She laughed. She overheard it and they said, why did you laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. She said, yeah, you laughed. She said, no, I didn't. They said, yes, you did. 
So they named the boy Isaac, which means son of laughter. And he was precious. Can you imagine? Just I waited 100 years for that kid. Literally. And here he is. And now he's growing up. And he's a toddler. And then, then he's five and six and seven and eight. He's maybe 10, 11, 12 years old at this point. And God speaks to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son of promise, your son Isaac, and I want you to, to take him to the mountains of Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. You want me to kill the son of promise? Yes. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. Can you even comprehend that? Can you even imagine that? My question is, has Abraham learned his lesson of faith? Has he learned to obey God when nothing makes sense? Has he learned to obey God when you cannot see the promise? You cannot see the answer? You cannot see even a sign of a breakthrough? Has he learned to trust God? Absolutely. I mean, he's waited 25 years for this boy. I don't know about you, I can't wait 25 minutes sometimes. He waited 25 years, so has he grown in his faith? Has he learned from his mistakes? Has he deepened his love, respect, and trust for God? Is he ready to make this ultimate sacrifice of his own son? And the answer is, he's ready. So he says yes. And he gathers up some wood, and he gathers up a little fire pot, and he puts his sharpest knife in a pouch, and he takes his little son Isaac, and they head to the mountains of Moriah. God said, go to, the, go to the hill that I will select for you. And when they get to the mountains of Moriah, God says, that one. And he climbs up this hill, and he builds an altar, and he lays the wood on top of it. And while they're constructing the altar for the burnt offering, little Isaac is 10, 11, 12 years old. He looks up at his dad. He says, Daddy, we have... We have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son and says, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. He says it again, God will provide <laughs> for the sacrifice. And after the wood is put on top of this altar, then he, he lays Isaac on top of it. And he pulls out this knife. And he lowers it to his son's throat. Is he really going to do it? I can't imagine him doing it. Is he really going to go through with it? He must have known. He must have known that God wasn't going to make him go through it. No, no, that's not what the text implies. That's not what the, 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 full, the, the full volume of the scripture teaches. We know what was in his mind. And in the last second, an angel calls out and says, no, no, don't hurt your son. And at the same time, he hears a ram caught by his horns in the thicket. 
and a substitute is made available. And you say, well, Abraham knew all along that God was going to provide a substitute, that he wouldn't have to take the life of his son. And the answer is no, that's not true. He was going to go through with it. And the way we know that is from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 19. It actually says in the New Testament that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So what we knew was in the heart of Abraham in his trusting reliance on God is that even if he took the life of his own son, that almighty God was great enough to raise him from the dead and fulfill the covenant promise. Now that's faith. That's faith. Something of interest, just over 2,000 years later than this event on Mount Moriah, you may be interested to know that an ancient city that we now know as Jerusalem was built on the hills of Mount Moriah. The mountains of Moriah is what sits the ancient city of Jerusalem. Most scholars believe that the very hill that Abraham took Isaac up for the sacrifice is the very hill upon which Jesus died. The very spot that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son is the very spot that Almighty God fulfilled the covenant promise that he's made to all of us which is to restore us to relationship and community and intimacy with him. That even if we failed to honor the covenant, he would not fail. And so God Almighty has actually proclaimed and demonstrated to us that be it done unto me just has been done to these animals in order for me to be faithful to the covenant promise I've made to my people when he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins, the things that separated us from God and, and made us aliens in a strange land. God, faithful to his covenant promise, sent his own son to be slaughtered and to pour out his own blood in order to fulfill and satisfy this covenant. The Bible says that Abraham's faith, which was substantial at the end of his life, was counted to him as righteousness. God said, now that's the kind of faith that I recognize. And now we stand all these years later still under the influence of this amazing covenant that God has made to us. And if we want to have the same kind of faith that leads to righteousness that Abraham had, then what we do is we place now our faith in his very own son on the altar of our own lives. And just like Abraham, our faith in God's sacrificial work through his son, Jesus Christ, will be counted as righteousness. And so we find in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And we read again in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace have you been saved through faith. 
that not of yourselves, not your effort, not your good works, not your good intentions, not your good behaviors, not of yourselves, lest any person should boast. By faith, you have been saved by this, the grace of God. Amazing. And so this is my appeal to you today. We've learned about the formation of a nation because Isaac did grow up and he did father a nation. And the nation of Israel has been in existence ever since. And we thank God for his covenant promise to Abraham and Abraham's faith, which was counted as righteousness. But now today, we are part of a greater family of God made possible because of the ultimate sacrifice that God has made of his only son, Jesus Christ, and our faith in him. Our belief in him restores our relationship with God and makes us fit for that eternal paradise. How can you know? That's how you know. By saying yes to this amazing offer of grace and forgiveness. I wonder, do you know? Have you such faith? Maybe for the first time in your life, it's coming clear to you what God has actually done for you, what it cost him, and what it takes to know him. It's a step of faith, of belief. I encourage you to take it today. If you're watching me online today, the hundreds of you that are, would you take stock, inventory of your own life today? If you're asking, how can I know? Abraham asked, it's a legitimate question. How can I know that you'll be faithful to me? This is how you know. By exercising your faith, which God will count as righteousness. Let's pause and pray about these things. Oh God, we thank you for this amazing story. Amazing. Amazing. We see you at work. We see you at work now through the life of Abraham, now over 4,000 years ago preparing the way for us in a moment like this. Right now, right here in the year 20, the year of our Lord, 2022. And this same covenant promise which you have sworn to uphold is now in effect. It's still in, it's still in, in play. So friend, if you're at a place right now in your life where it occurs to you, I need to say yes. As many as received him, he gave the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Maybe you're in the room or listening online today and for the first time or maybe in a long time, you're ready to say yes to this amazing promise, this covenant kept by our great God who loves us so much that he would offer the sacrifice of his own son in order to reclaim reclaim us, reclaim you to his family. If that's true for you today, I want to pray a prayer. I'll pray it, you pray it right after me out loud. If you're at home, pray it out loud. If you're listening anywhere in the world, pray it out loud today. If you're in the room on campus today, just pray it out loud after me. Are you ready? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner, I've failed, I've made mistakes, I've fallen short, but I believe that Jesus Christ became the perfect sacrifice for my sins. Lord Jesus, 
forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I believe on you. I receive you. And I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to live for you and know you and serve you. Help me, Holy Spirit, to go from this place today to follow you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Would you stand with us?